Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. I'm Oliver Hartwich and today we are joined by a very special guest, the 39th Prime Minister of New Zealand, Bill English. Hi Bill, great to have you. It's nice to be here. A first time for me, I think. First time on the podcast, but you are actually the politician we hosted the most over our 12 years, nearly 12 years now. And actually, you also spoke at the event at which the initiative was launched. But first time on the podcast and great to have you with us. What we want to do today is have a bit of a conversation about our state of politics. Not the typical kind of political conversation of who gets what and what kind of policies will we see implemented. But we want to take a step backwards and just discuss actually how politics has changed over the last three, four decades, really. But if I may, I would like to start with something slightly different, because you have actually experienced a lot of change, a lot of ups and downs for your party, for yourself personally. You have seen what it is when parties collapse to the low 20s. You've seen what it feels like when they go up to the mid 40s. When you look at the change of government now, I mean, forget the political differences. Do you feel for the other guys? Not in the sense, well, I, I do in the sense that I know some of the feelings I'll have, but not in the sense that anyone who's involved in politics needs to be humble about it. That is, you're you know, one, one or two mistakes away from losing your job, and the public are pretty direct in when they decide that they're finished with you. And people who don't know that ought to just study a bit of history, and then they'll remember it. The, the tricky part is accepting responsibility. So they'll be going through a stage I fully empathise with. People didn't appreciate them, uh, didn't understand them. They probably could have communicated better. We, we always fall back on saying, if only we'd explained ourselves better, they would have agreed with us and elected us. But of course, for any number of them, there are just pretty difficult personal changes. That is loss of income, significant reduction in income. And I think what you'd find is those are the most difficult issues to deal with, even though no one talks about it. Change in personal circumstances. So I imagine it's the loss of your EA, your office, your driver, things like that. Yep, that's a, lo a loss of status, and that uh, certainly does affect people. Uh, if they were personally dependent on it, and most of us end up a bit too personally dependent on it, I think the, often the more difficult issue to deal with is just the change in personal circumstances. For many people in Parliament, it's as good, the best paid job, the most interesting job they'll ever have, and you, you lose your income mm. when you lose. And a lot of, in the current Labour Party, a lot of people lost their seats and are actually out of Parliament. And I do feel for them because they, they um, have to, uh, you know, the, you're unplugged very quickly. Is it true that it's a little bit different, actually, if you're on the left of politics compared to the right? I mean, I'm generalizing a little bit. For a lot of people, politicians on the left, when they go to parliament, when they enter cabinet, they will probably climb up the income ladder, whereas for many people on the right, it's actually a step, step down. Oh, I, I don't know if it's that distinctive. I think there is a particular pain for anyone, but it's more a bit more likely on the left for whom the business of governing is the ultimate experience and, and and more so if you believe that is the way the community should be run by people like me pulling the levers of power. And I think defeat in the face of that attitude is pretty crushing. 
Is that a problem then for mental health? I mean, I heard a lot about um, rock stars, pop stars. They have this audience in front of them when they play the big stadiums. And people are going crazy when they just touch the piano or play the next guitar riff. And then they withdraw into the changing room and there's no one there. They're doing the same thing again, but nobody applauds. And I've heard it many times described that that is actually a crushing experience. It must be a bit like that when you're getting off that adrenaline and off that drug of politics and you're suddenly on your own and nobody cares for what you say anymore. Well, that is a pretty accurate description of it. Do you, you experience it or have you watched it in colleagues? Oh, both. I, I learned a bit of a lesson early on. I remember coming out of a um, conference in Australia and seeing Paul Keating sitting out there on, on the couch outside the big conference room holding court. And it kind of looked a bit sad. He'd been out of politics a while and needed an audience and actually still does uh, many years later. Yep. Uh, relevance deprivation syndrome affects everyone who leaves politics, uh, certainly if they leave unwillingly. And I, I think you, you go through a phase where, it, it, you know, a year later you'll realise how wound up you were. Mm. I, you know, when I left I thought, oh, yeah, I am adjusting to this pretty well. Uh, and in fact, I wasn't adjusting that well. But I think the important, what, what makes the difference among politicians, ex-politicians is what they then do. And I think the most important thing is just get on and deal with basics like can you replace your income? Uh, how do you reintegrate? properly into the household routines. Who is it you haven't been able to give time to that you should now give time to because you have the capacity? And, uh, you know, let all the political stuff just waft past. Don't pay attention to it. Is it also a little bit liberating, though? I actually haven't heard much of this from ex-politicians saying that it was a liberation. But there's one example I have in mind, a former colleague of mine with whom I worked in London, Charter Leslie, she was a Conservative MP, became an MP in the 2010 election and lost uh, her seat in 2017. It was a marginal Conservative seat. And she basically culled a whole Facebook friends list. And I'm one of the few lucky ones still there because I know her from a time before. And she posted, and I think I may quote this here, finally, a time when nobody cares what I say, when I can just say what I think, and when I can just enjoy life as it was before, bliss. Is that a feeling that sometimes came to you? Well, it does come, yes, because you're – I mean, they, these are trade-offs, aren't they? On the one hand, the institutional arrangements feed you energy. They, it feeds you issues. All you have to do is turn up, and everything else happens. There's literally hundreds of people, sometimes thousands, uh, running a machine that puts the thing, the issues in front of you or the decisions and the relationships. And that's – so when people leave, they have to generate their own energy suddenly – all on their own, and I think that's that's a big part of the, the sort of aftershock or the hangover, is you get out of bed on Tuesday morning, the phone's not ringing, no one's knocking on the door, no one needs you, and the people who adapt well then decide, right, how do I energise my life without all that? The other, uh, On the other hand, it is very institutional, and there are a lot of constraints around those institutions. You can't do anything without 300 people agreeing, and I have to say I've been fortunate in my transition to have been motivated quite quickly around developing some family businesses. Family's uh, a big factor in all of this, isn't it? It is, yes. And I wanted the opportunity to be working with my adult children and um, that's turned out pretty well. It's probably uh, as much a transition for your family as it was for you. Well, it may be. 
they haven't complained about it, but it, it they were could, probably quite glad to see the security detail disappear. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's right. Or maybe they've you know some of them have voted with their feet and gone to Australia <laughs> just because Dan's around being a bit poking into their business. Okay. Well, what I also wanted to talk about with you was actually how politics has changed in the time that you have observed and in which you have been active in politics. You were first elected to parliament in 1990. That was the second last election New Zealand had under first past the post. It was even three years before the referendum to introduce MMP, so different electoral system. And it was a completely different time. I just looked it up, actually. New Zealand at the time had two nationwide TV programs. There were, I think, three channels for Sky, but that had already just started in some cities. There were probably a lot more newspapers and thicker newspapers around. And when people talked about tweeting, they thought about birds, not social media. So it was a very different time. When you look back to that time, what stands out for you? What was different then, what was probably better then, or maybe what was worse then compared to today? Well, I think it's it's useful to look back in order to maintain perspective. I was thinking about this the other day, watching a uh, documentary about Robert Kennedy and seeing the disruption and the division of the 60s on a large scale in the US. And actually in New Zealand, things were pretty rough at that time. We tend to think, we tend to get a bit focused on the process of opinion making, which has changed quite significantly. Uh, but the underlying issues haven't really. Uh, so in 1990, the process was different. You never went to a provincial town without going to see the newspaper editor. They were important people. The Southland Times, my local paper, I knew the editor well. I spent quite a bit of time with them. The Matara Enzyme had an editor that covered Eastern Southland. You knew who they were. The editor of the community newspaper, because there were some then, also an important person because that was the bottleneck through which the communication with the voter at large had to pass. And I was going to say you probably had them on speed dial except there were no mobile phones either. No, no mobile no mobile phones. I still remember getting the first mobile phone in the car, which was not too bad, clunky, expensive, and people did think it was pretty weird when you rang them up because they weren't expecting to hear a car noise or say, where are you? Mm-hmm. Um, or the first fax. I remember spending $3,000 on a fax oh, as, a new, as a new EMP yep. uh, because I thought it would be important for getting select committee papers, and sometimes it was. Of course, we don't have to worry about that now. So the process was, in some respects, obvious, a longer news cycle with more bottlenecks in it, and now it's a great deal more fragmented. But the underlying issues then were pretty tense. I mean, I remember attending protest meetings in the in country halls in Southland, 600 people in Lumsden when, Rod, Sir Rod, when Roger Douglas came to talk to them about the restructuring of the rural, commun- rural community. And it, it went through some real trauma on a scale that hasn't been replicated since with the kind of mental health outcomes you'd expect. Mm. My predecessor really had a very challenging job because he was dealing regularly with suicides and farming families that he knew well because uh, he'd serviced them for many years. I remember the, the 1991 budget. Uh, that one, yes. You know, attending a National Party conference where hundreds of people were beating on the windows trying to drown out the internal proceedings. Select committee hearings in Palmerston North where, uh, where it, the select committee hearing in the convention centre there was 
invaded by a large crowd who essentially took over a one-hour session and turned it into a four- or five-hour session. Uh, they actually did just push the door, push through the locked doors. So there was a kind of immediacy and power in these contentious issues, which is actually somewhat dissipated into verbal stouching on the new social media. Were the debates back then deeper, more philosophical perhaps? I mean, what our listeners, of course, can't see right now, we are sitting not just in our podcast studio, but we're sitting in effectively our storage room. And we've got a lot of publications from our predecessor organizations from that time. And if there's one thing that really stands out is how thick they are. They are much bigger than the kinds of reports I would dare to publish these days <laughs> because I think the attention span has become a little bit shorter. Uh, look, I think that's right. But it doesn't that, – that, yeah, I think that's right. But it doesn't change how important a lot of these issues are. Mm -hmm. So whether you've got a long report on it or a short report on it, whether our kids are getting educated still matters. And I'm a believer in the um, – sort of self-correction mechanisms of liberal democracy um, and capitalism, and that is people will tolerate, particularly in New Zealand, all sorts of things, including things they think are nonsense, but they just don't bother doing much about it, until they won't tolerate it, and then they react reasonably strongly. And I can't help thinking that even now in a, in a, in a sort of moderately important way, the... Uh, Labour Party will be wondering what went on there. Uh, you know, we spent a whole lot more money, we cared a lot about people, we said and did some fantastic things, and they'll be puzzled about that. Um, in, in the, as, well, I think we as were you previously. Uh, no, I think when when we lost, um, I think there was you know good reasons for it in some cases, but you know, a bit weird in twenty seventeen. Yep. But uh, you could you could sort of feel it. Mm. You knew that uh, somehow you'd run out. Uh, and may, maybe the Labour Party thinks they run out. My point being that uh, whether people are reading thicker or thinner documents, they'll still come to views about the issues of the day and they'll want to sort of bring it back to anchored in their lives the things that matter to them because ultimately as the voters they're in charge. There's probably another difference when you're looking back. Back then with only two TV programmes, Students coming together on a schoolyard on a Monday morning would probably talk about the same TV programs because they all watch them. And now they don't. Yeah. And now they can watch whatever they like on YouTube and all sorts of other platforms. There would not be that many shared experiences anymore of the whole nation watching something, maybe in the Rugby World Cup, of course, every few years. But other than that, I think society has fallen apart. It must be harder for politicians to reach people because they simply don't come together like that anymore. Well, you, you don't reach them through the sports club because the sports club has either disappeared or it's much smaller than it used to be. <coughs> Churches have, to a large extent, um, well, a lot of them have just expired uh, and certainly shrunk. So you Trade unions, another Yeah, you, you don't have that. That's right. You, you don't have that level of civil society, of voluntary collectivism, which is was always a way of mediating differences, sorting out what people thought, and access for representative representative democracy. So we've had to adapt to social media and so on. I think there's, there's good things and bad things about it. The, the, bad, the good things are you don't have a small group of people with a chokehold 
on political how political debate gets carried out, or a chokehold on the flow of information, or cra- or somehow excessively influencing, for instance, a nation's view about what's happening in the rest of the world, because. I can now read as much commentary as I like about the situation in the Middle East or Ukraine from private individuals no one's ever heard of with no mediation. Except uh, you will uh, find it difficult at times to assess the quality of what you read. That, that's right, yes, exactly. But I think what has happened, uh, the, the not-so-good part of it is that the, inst- the social institutions that do continue exist, to exist are generally government-funded, so I'm talking here about universities in New Zealand, oddly enough, a fair bit of the media. Yep. And they have become more dominated by people with a chokehold on the use of that resource. Uh, I think it explains some of the gap between the the voters and the political establishment. So when most of your public most of your institutions are publicly funded and appear to all think roughly the same thing, which is not what you think. Uh, then you've got what uh, raises questions of legitimacy, but also questions of well, whose resource is it and who gets to decide whether it should be used that way or used for other purposes. That's somehow ironic, isn't it? At a time when there are more media sources and more opportunities to have an exchange of ideas online than ever before, you still have an in- increased position of the state in our public discourse via universities, via TVNZ, and other institutions. Well, here's an optimistic view about it, um, that they do have, there's a lot of resource there, but it's kind of marginalising itself. And the fact is, you and I can have this conversation, lots of people are doing somewhat similar activities. There's a whole world of the unofficial and also low-cost transmission of opinion and debate. And that works, I think, as... A, and as a counterbalance to this institutional direction that is getting out of line with a lot of the people who fund it, but also voters who just have who don't pay much tax, but still wonder why is all that going on there? I mean, mm. you think of all the just again recently all the Labor voters who stayed home. Mm-hmm. You know what 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 are they actually thinking? And part of it is just the distance between the reality of their lives and the things that bother them and what they hear from the institutions that they are meant to support and which and which their party is an intrinsic supporter of, like state media. So we've talked about state media. I think we should probably also talk about private media. The other difference is probably in the 1990s and 2000s still, we had a lot of classifieds, of course, in the private media. And Private media effectively cross-subsidized political coverage out of that, with the revenue from these classifieds now going towards well, Google and Facebook and perhaps TradeMe and other places. The cross-subsidization simply isn't possible any longer, and therefore we are getting less political coverage, which was always perhaps, as I said, cross-subsidized, so not quite what the market perhaps wanted. It was written for people like you and me, but we don't get that anymore. So the newspapers have become thinner probably less researched. The quality of debate has probably suffered as a result of that. Is that a challenge then to really get through? I mean, if you wanted to do a big education reform, and that takes a while to argue your case, probably longer than just a tweet and longer than a 10-second statement, would you still have a chance to do this in today's media? 
well, not that, it wouldn't be that easy through that media. But I think we should uh, distinguish between the official discourse and the unofficial discourse. Now, one of the features of the last seven or eight years has been the unexpected, or well, the exercise of democratic opinion votes with unexpected results. And the obvious ones being, the high-profile ones being Trump getting elected, Brexit. And all um, the voice. And the voice referendum. Mm-hmm. Where the official political establishment suffered from being disconnected, partly because of these media issues. I mean, they didn't have a significant local newspaper editor who was credibly artic- allowing his newspaper to articulate the concerns of that community because that newspaper has shrunk to a few pages and a few sports pages and a bit of community reporting. Mm. So they missed it. Okay, but the feel, but the emotions and the opinions were strongly held and they were still there in the, all the unofficial media. And of course, this has evolved into this concept of disinformation, which personally I think is a, a, a tagline for things I don't understand that I disagree with. And of course, the possibility of turning that into law, which could somehow police the disinformation. So these are all just parts of the aspects of an adjustment to the way the world works differently. But in the end, you know, the, the, the people speak. They're, in the end, they're not wrong. Ultimately, they're right, because that's where the legitimacy lies. And we want to keep these other debates, I think, in perspective. Just so we're not misunderstood here, there is genuine misinformation and disinformation. I mean, typically by state actors, I'm thinking of Russia. And they're spreading this. This is not what you mean. You mean just being accused of disinformation when actually you, you just hold a different view. Well, that's right. And it's treated as if it's something new. Well, propaganda by rogue states goes back several thousand years. And sometimes it's effective. And you need a population who are, you know, the, the, the population needs to be able to sort that out to stay stable. And democracies have generally not done a bad job of that compared, compared to other states. Uh, it's not, and, it, and disinformation is not new in political debate. Often the debate is precisely about what the facts are, not that there's some body of facts that people in the back rooms at Facebook and Twitter know are the right ones uh, and everyone else is, is, is making it up. So now you're seeing the growth of a range of fact-checking or data-producing um, types of media. Well, this is the normal contest of points of view and at least it's reasonably energised, but we shouldn't fall for the notion that disinformation is new, that some of this is so bad it has to be made illegal. Well, of course, some of it actually is so bad it has to be made illegal, but that normal political debate is somehow potentially illegal. It's certainly not new. I mean, there have been whole wars started based on misinformation. I'm thinking of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, for example, that was basically misinformation on behalf of Bismarck, who claimed that the French had made demands which actually they hadn't, or at least it's not quite the way that Bismarck presented them. So we've been there before, for a long time. But maybe getting back to the present, the other thing that changed is, of course, the political system as a result of the change towards MMP. So 
while we're talking about the decline of traditional media, while we're talking about the decline of mass organizations, we have a parallel development in politics in New Zealand politics with the move towards MMP, with a lot of smaller parties, with a lot more volatility in the political scene. And actually, when we're looking at the election this year, I believe this must be among the lowest share of votes for the two main parties combined. How has that system changed our politics? I don't think it's made as much difference as we thought it would, or as its proponents thought it would, uh, back in the mid-90s. And I'm thinking of you know, Rod Donald, Jim Anderson. I think Jim Anderson actually opposed it. Rod Donald was proposing it. But both, I think Helen Clark was opposed to it. I certainly was opposed to it. Not that I was as influential as they were. <laughs> uh, but um, again, if you see it as a, a different way of organising opinion, but fundamentally a public opinion hasn't shifted a whole lot. It still worries about the same things, expresses them a bit differently. It's got a wider range of opinion than it did just because our community is more diverse than it used to be. And more people do get to have a say and, and, and a platform than, than used to be the case. So MMP you know, changed the process a bit, changed how we go about it. But I think it's a mistake for people to think that that means the public are incapable of dealing with significant issues or major change. It might mean your skill set needs to be a bit different to argue it. But that's not a bad thing if you have to actually argue the case and win the argument rather than jam it through on the back of a 33% vote. So do I understand you correctly then that you would say if someone like David Seymour, very successful on MMP with ACT currently, in previous times he would have just become a national MP and he would have actually represented a certain wing of the National Party. That's right. So some of that kind of, some of those broader coalitions have been unbundled and that's a... It's difficult for large parties. I don't think there's much doubt about that. It's created more tension within parties. Uh, and the Labour Party are about to go through that process, contesting ground with the Greens and the Māori Party, in the same way that National had to rebuild from a pretty bunch of tough competitors after 2002, United Party, New Zealand First and Act. One way or another, the public sees the wisdom of a stronger party on each side and will tend to push in that direction. The standard argument against MMP is that it has blurred accountability, of course. And, I mean, we see this now. We are in this period where there are probably some coalition talks already happening, even though they're not official. But you never quite know what you get. My favorite example with MMP, by the way, is from Germany. In the 2005 election, Angela Merkel campaigned for a 2% increase in their version of GST. The Social Democrats said, no, you can't do this. It's socially unjust. The two parties found themselves in coalition. And guess what? GST went up by 3%. What a perfect compromise. <laughs> it's a perfect it's, compromise it's between zero economics. and two. Good economics. Yeah, well, but basically, <laughs> They accidentally got it right. Accidentally, yes, but the accountability, of course, is strange when one party says, oh, we can't do this at all, one party says two, and then you get three. So we've got this problem, actually, that you never quite know what you get after an election. No, not after an election, necessarily, but people know that. And this time, for instance, they wanted to make sure they didn't get some horse trading, both sides, coalition negotiation, and they made sure that happened because the last time that happened, they didn't get the result that they thought they were going to get. So a price has been paid. So, let, you know, the, over time, these things correct themselves to some extent. Whatever you get after the election, 
you still get the character of a government through an election cycle and people will judge this coalition like all the others on the character of that government through the cycle. Okay, let's now talk a little bit about The Voice and I'm particularly interested in your views on that because you have currently a number of directorships on the other side of the Tasman. So you're extremely familiar with the Australian political scene and you would have followed the debate heading up to The Voice referendum and you would have probably made comparisons with your own experience in New Zealand. What was your feeling when they started the process? I felt that it was naive. On behalf of the government of Albanese? Yeah, on the political class. In, in general. Yeah, and re- so what I mean by that is regardless of what you think of the merits of the voice or otherwise, a referendum is is not the right way to deal with it. So why, you know, everyone has a say, why don't they just have a referendum, sort it all out? What it does is it forces people into a binary position, yes, no, on issues about which they aren't sure or feel very strongly. And the divisiveness is in itself a negative for the democracy. And I think that's what you're seeing in Australia. The The divisiveness created by a referendum isn't a good thing. It's a bit the, like Brexit with the Brexiteers and the Remainers still fighting it to the day when the referendum was seven years ago. That's right. And the, I mean, the, these difficult issues, because they are pretty challenging issues because of the range of views and the complexity of the issues themselves, and it's more complex in Australia dealing with Indigenous issues there than it is in New Zealand. Because they have limited experience? Well, that's one, but also just the structure of Aboriginal society is way more complex. So fewer, significantly less proportion of the population and a much more complex set of sort of tenure status, who's in charge in which part of the country. Because Because these things are complex, they can really only proceed at the pace of the custom and the practice of the people. And sometimes that gets a push with events, like in New Zealand, the land marches, the Springbok tour, really pushed issues along in a pretty vigorous way that forced people to grapple with them if they were, had tried to ignore them. But the, comp, the, the progress is always going to be a kind of messy compromise of the obvious issues. We're in a democracy, how far do we go? treating some people differently than others. Well, we're willing to go so far, but not too far. How far is that? Well, it depends on the issue. And sometimes you go forward, sometimes you go back. The interesting thing about The Voice No campaign was that it was actually led by two Aboriginal activists and politicians. You had Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price, both campaigning against No, both coming from an Aboriginal background and both deeply committed, of course, to resolving the social issues that a lot of Aboriginal communities in Australia still face. Yes, there were. And some of this is about a contest of which institutions are more effective at resolving those issues rather than whether those issues should be resolved, which is why in Australia it's it won't be that productive if they sort of continue with the post-referendum reaction that whoever voted against it was was motivated by racism. It's, well, clearly it, Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine weren't. Well, if you listen to some of the Indigenous commentary, you'd think they were. But it's contest of institutions. What I mean by that is there's one argument that says the best way to deal with this is through strengthening families, growing growing business, people getting work, which in a sense is about an integrationist argument. And uh, welfare reform and education policy. That's right, make sure people are getting well-educated and immunised and so on. And then there's another argument that says the... Uh, the way forward is through the agency of the state. And of course, both of these arguments have merit. The agency of the state, though, 
the state has proven to be, both in Australia and New Zealand, not very good at it. Mm-hmm. And that's fairly obvious in Australia where there's been large amounts of spending. And yes, actually... For decades. That needs... Those institutions need to be thoroughly challenged from the bottom up, which is what a number, a lot of, quite a lot of Aboriginal opinion wants to do. A good example is education, where there's now a growing movement towards independent Aboriginal schools, where they say, look, the state can't even deliver teachers to my school more than three days a week. So effectively charter schools or partnership schools as we had them here. And they're growing yes. over there. And or academies in the UK, same story. Yeah, and that is a direct challenge to the sort of lo- a lot of the support for the yes, which overlaps with strong support for the state institutions. So everyone agrees it hasn't worked that well. There's two different answers, and I'd say both. You, you need to go on both paths. One is building up those family and business and economic and education-based processes and, and achievement, and the other is really challenging the state institutions who are... Now, in my view, the post, the sort of welfare state institutions are fundamentally incapable of the change that's needed to really support the Aboriginal community to make progress. They need different institutions. And the referendum was not about recognising Aboriginal Australians because they have been recognised since 1967 in the Australian Constitution. It was actually a binary choice between just doing something and continuing something else. But it wasn't actually a clear-cut choice and it wasn't clear, a clear-cut program laid out to Australians. And and it wasn't articulated to... And I think I think people on the yes and no side would all agree now that for the average Australian out in Western Sydney or regional New South Wales, the explanation of what it was kept changing mm-hmm. from some, sometimes people saying, look, this is the opportunity of a hundred years, you must support it because otherwise will go backwards and it's, it'll be terrible. And then another point of view, that another argument for it that said, this is just a modest change, it doesn't really matter, it's in the Constitution, no one will take any notice of it. Well, they couldn't both be right. Mm-hmm. And for people get confused, no matter how well motivated they are. So I'd see it first as just a, a political process that was poorly managed with predictably bad results, regardless of your point of view about the voice. Now, as I mentioned, you are well connected into Australian business circles. You're sitting on a few boards over in Australia. You would have had these conversations with Australian business leaders. And what I'm getting at is, of course, the Australian business community was almost unanimously in favour because they felt they had to or because they thought it was the right thing to do or because they were politically naive. I think a mixture of all of those things. There's Fantastic work going on a lot of these businesses where uh, particularly actively around the employment of Aboriginals, the development of the leadership, and I get to meet uh, some of these amazing, some of these fantastic people, some of whom have overcome huge adversity, some of whom, of course, have had pretty relatively stable, successful upbringings, like probably a majority of Aboriginal people in Australia enjoy, just as here, a majority of Māori don't come from completely dysfunctional households and, 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 Indeed. and long-term poverty. But a lot of businesses have, have done a great job and will keep doing so. But I think they, they, there wasn't a good understanding of how normal voters would view this whole lineup of almost coercive pressure, partner companies blasting it through their website, mm. through their works, workplaces, sort of a lack of respect for the voter yeah. in a way that, that, that somehow – they would just 
vote for it because all these all these um, well-educated, well-paid people said it was a good thing. And I just want to confirm, actually, that you, the point you just made, that we're talking about just some communities and there's a whole chunk of Aboriginal Australia just living lives like practically every other ethnicity in Australia. I had a colleague in Sydney at the Centre for Independent Studies where you're also on the board these days, the late Helen Hughes, Professor Helen Hughes. And Helen, you probably met her. She always said, well, we're talking about maybe half of Aboriginal Australia because the other half live in the inner cities and they work as teachers and nurses and postmen and managers and doctors like everybody else. So it's a concentrated problem. It's not necessarily an ethnic problem. It's a concentrated regional problem and we should treat it as such. Yeah, and of course it has uh, ethnic and cultural aspects to it. If you want to do, sure. if you want to achieve change for the communities we're talking about, then it has to be in, has to be done in a way that makes that makes sense to them. But I think what's sitting in behind it is, in the Australian vote, and to some extent here, a growing suspicion of the categorisation of everybody in such a deterministic way yes. that if you look this way. If you look like this, then here's here's the list of assumptions that I, I believe you drive you in your life. That's a very simplistic way of looking at things. It's surprising that this simplistic view is coming out of some big corporates, I mean, take Qantas, where decision-making is typically more complex. They wouldn't run their business like that. And yet Qantas, of course, they painted a few planes and they made a song and dance about their support for yes. But in fact, this was a very under-complex way of looking at this challenge. Uh, yeah, and that, yes, and, and the businesses, that sits alongside a very sophisticated view of customers. Exactly. Because, of course, what they do when they're talking about customers is invest hundreds of millions in knowing your customer in detail so that you can offer them the next plane ticket or the next product and off the shelf. And sometimes these flights even exist in Qantas. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes they, well, it, well, there you go. That's a, that's a lesson in humility, isn't it, to get, getting carried away. So it's why I think the, the both the voice, voice referendum and the New Zealand election have some parallels yep. in the sense that it's, it's in a sense, ordinary voters saying, well, we're not necessarily going to go along with what all you people say. And the all you people are a bit bewildered by it. Do you think the Australian business community has now understood that lesson or are they still trying to figure out what happened? I think a bit of both. I think some will be relieved that having found it hard to say no, they got wound into the momentum of this thing where everyone had to come forward, whether it's sports clubs or corporates or whatever, and support it. So they'll be pleased to be relieved of the burden of it. Others are, others are going to struggle. But I think, look, I think most of them will just decide they're committed to doing what they can in their business around these uh, around Indigenous-related issues. They're a lot more aware, I think, of how potentially divisive the loose talk has been around dropping everyone into a category, and not just with Indigenous people, but all sorts of different groups of people who are meant to think certain things, and that that thinking is, has, has peaked. I wouldn't say it's run its course, but it's peaked. And I think it's particularly important that the public institutions take notice of that because voters aren't, over the next few years, going to be willing to indulge it. For the next few years, but it will probably come again in the future. It was a bit of a repeat, wasn't it? Uh, Australia's been there before with the Republic referendum. Actually, in, in some cases, led by the same people. I'm thinking Malcolm Turnbull campaigning for the Republic back then in the late 1990s, and then, of course, campaigning for a yes vote today. 
But it was a similar kind of setup. You had the whole elite Australian opinion. Now, making the case for the Republic, it's unavoidable. We have to change. At some stage, we'll have to get rid of the monarchy anyway. And you had this whole elite. You had the academic elite. You had the media elite. You had some corporate elite at the time too. And then they all went in the direction the Australian people in the end said, no, actually, we're not having that. And so they've been there before with the same kind of setup. Isn't that ironic? And the same, and some of the same after after effects where there's an argument that it was the reason they voted against it was because they misun- they didn't know what they were doing or they were badly led by some nasty operator who had bad motivation. And I think they need to get through need to get through that phase. But it's a it's a check on what has been capturing of the high ground by a bunch of institutions and a culture. Which, in the, which the voters are now saying, we're not willing to support that. Because you've got to remember, most uh, a fair bit of this is funded by, or it's all funded by voters or customers. That is, ordinary people spending their dollars every day. And they're going to have a say about that. So I don't think the problem is the rationality of the public. I think the challenge is whether the people who command public resource understand and respect the people who are providing it. I mean, I spoke to people in the last week or so who who said who said to me, I don't know how it got to 60%. I've never talked to someone who opposed the voice. And I think maybe they're right. Maybe they never have. So that should tell you something. You know, if you're commanding public or commercial resource and you never talk to someone who holds a view, 60% of the population holds then you probably need to get out more. Yeah. Have you ever come across Elisabeth Neumann? I've heard of it. Yeah. She, she was a pollster, actually one of the greatest pollsters probably Germany ever had. And in the 1970s, she wrote a book about the discrepancy between her polling data and what actually happened in elections. And she coined that phrase of the spiral of silence, meaning that some people will tell her what they think she wants to hear or what accepted public opinion is, but they wouldn't actually tell her anything else because they don't want to fall out with the perceived public opinion. Mm. And because everybody does that, it spirals to a point where nobody actually says the majority opinion anymore and where it seems that one view is totally dominant except nobody holds it. And I think that's exactly what happened in Australia, for better or for worse, right? Let's, if you're open-minded about what should have happened there. And, you know, it's their country. They get to decide about their constitution. And, and, a, little, and a little bit here in New Zealand because I think you're going to see something of a reaction in New Zealand from people who are certainly disappointed the, the Labour government went out but kind of wondering who who are these people? Yeah, what's also interesting and that's a parallel between Australia and New Zealand how geographically the countries are falling apart when it comes to opinion. You said in Australia of course the voice referendum failed by I think it was in the end 61, 39 or something like that. But of course there are pockets of Australia, I mean notably ACT, Canberra that was the only place where a majority really voted for the voice but all the inner cities, inner Sydney, inner Melbourne, basically all the seats that in the previous parliamentary election went for teal candidates and In parallel in New Zealand, of course, we had an election where we now have three Greens constituency MPs, also from inner city electorates. So geographically, the countries are falling apart. You've got a massive gap now, a schism between inner city elites, 
So people working probably for government or coming straight out of a tertiary education or working in tertiary education or in the media. And they hold very different views from the rest of the country. Yeah, well, let's, in the fair, you always want to qualify these things because they're, they're relative. Of right? course, and it's a generalisation. There are other people, of course, yes. Yeah, uh, and it's, you know, the Greens won two seats in Wellington. Over half of the voters didn't vote for them. So just keep, we've got to keep in mind these are shifts in opinion rather than, than takeovers. But I think that the combination of that's emerging of tertiary education being a increasingly predictor of predictable set of kind of soft centre-left views, geographical location, income, and we see this phenomenon particularly in the US, you know, the Republicans becoming more the part, more and more a party of the lower income American. Quite uh, a reversal. And it, you know, might, I don't think it'll happen quite the same way here, but that's it's, it's a bit of a trend and the kind of, and as you, I think, averted to earlier on in the conversation, groups who spend quite a bit of time talking to themselves and not, not much to each other. There's going to be a test over the next four or five years about that, of these differences, because some of the differences are luxury opinions. Opinions you can afford to hold when there's no trade-offs and no consequences. You know, Wellington City ratepayers are familiar with this. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> the, the economy's going to get a bit tougher. Unemployment's going to go up. Government's going to be winding back here and in Australia, most places, most countries. And so there's just going to be significantly less of a market for people who can have opinions about things that don't really matter much, but they hold them very strongly. And the kind of things that are going to matter and test our tolerance will shift back to economic issues like how much unemployment are we willing to tolerate rather than how much you know, political correctness about some particular issue we're willing to tolerate. It'll be more about the ability for people to get work and a wee bit less about freedom of speech. So our countries, New Zealand and Australia, are falling apart geographically when it comes to certain opinions. Is that also something that's different today compared to, say, 1990 when you first entered Parliament? Or was it already present back then? I think it's just mutated into a different form. I mean, I was brought up in rural Southland. From our point of view, Dunedin was a kind of fog of cosmopolitanism, which would be bad for your young people if you sent them there. So the word differences, actually even between, in our case, Dipton West and Dipton, because Dipton was the township and Dipton West were the country people, and they were literally one each side of the bridge. There was also sectarian differences. Even as a candidate in 1990, I was asked the JFK question, are you more loyal to the Pope or to the country, to your country? So we, we want to keep in mind Part of the beauty of our political system is we've found ways of resolving these degrees of difference in a way that's proven to be sustainable over time so everyone can get, a, get ahead. We don't wreck the place over these differences of opinion. They just uh, We're arguing about different things now than 30 years ago, but we're still arguing. And I would say, actually, 30 years ago, people were more willing to face the consequences by going out and running a pretty tough protest or showing their displeasure in other pretty robust ways. Now there's and there's all this kind of online stuff that's depersonalized difference. Yep. 
I actually think it's not the difference differences that are different or worse. It's the depersonalizing of them because it is harder to have a strongly different, dismissive, censorious, unforgiving opinion of you when I look at you than it is to do it online. And it's that that sense that sort of censorious lack of tolerance and hammering, sort of unforgiving hammering of people who make mistakes or have stupid opinions. That is a bit different. So how optimistic are you then that we will be able to overcome these differences? Will we actually see the countries actually coming together again? Or will these differences between inner cities and countryside just grow bigger because of the anonymity of the net as well? That's a good question. I, I would hope not. I would hope that you will have... Well, we, we tend to have these uniting events, you know, the whether it's, you know, sort of, for periods at least of connection with the people of the East Coast who were wrecked by cyclones or the Christchurch earthquake or uh, the referees' decisions in the World Cup finals. You know, I think we're, certain, we're coherent enough to hold together under quite a bit of pressure, but, you know, who knows when that's going to crack. So I'm not in the, of a view that it's a ser- these are really serious issues right now. I could imagine they could become so, but let's... Let's not get too fussy about the fact that someone over there doesn't understand my world at all and says nasty things about me. And if I make a mistake, they're going to make a, a song and dance about it. Because that's a very unpleasant experience for everybody, but it's not new. And if you don't have that, if you don't have disagreement, um, then you're not going to get change and progress. I want to use the final minutes of our conversation for something completely different. And I want to talk about Impact Lab. You started your own company. Um, it follows on from your work in government. So you, as finance minister, you started the integrated data infrastructure, so the use of data for public policy purposes. And you've continued that in a private capacity with Impact Lab, your company. Now, Linking it to the fracturing of society that we've now talked about for almost an hour, your job is gathering data, big data, about individual people, but also about group identities. When you're looking at this fracturing of society, again, whether it's political or ethnic or geographical, how difficult does it make your job then in dealing with data for policymaking? Well, it's, it's fairly challenging and more challenging for the hundreds of organisations we work with who aren't. And perhaps we should explain what this is because I think for okay. most of our <laughs> listeners, I mean, we talk about the IDI yeah. all the time and then typically you look into blank faces and people don't quite know what we're talking about. Can you explain maybe in 30 seconds what it is? Oh, the IDI is a anonymized linked data set of all your interactions with public services. Which is massive because the government knows a lot about us. And it goes back about 30 years in some cases. So it's a fantastic, fantastic resource for figuring out what happens in people's lives, like across their lives. But the, I suppose that the point about the data is that I, that keeps us highly motivated is it cut, it, it, it is actually the data tells you about people first. And our public policy world and our public discussion uses these big generalized categories and they're the mostly wrong the mo- averages are wrong a bit like talking about aboriginal australians exactly and when you actually look into the stories of people's lives 
you'll find that they, of course, we are influenced by our cultural backgrounds, and that's really important to all of us, but it's not definitive of our state in life. And it can be, of course, the if you get on the right escalator with it, it helps you improve your state of life. So the data, in a sense, strips back the institutional overlay. So people are people, not pupils, prisoners, patients, pensioners. They've got the data can tell you where they live, what they need, what, what's likely to happen with them. And in that sense, it's a great leveller. It also get, creates a whole set of knowledge that's inconvenient for the institutions of government because the institutions of government are set up to pump out universal services of a commodity nature for most people. One size fits all. One size fits all. And they, you know, they adapt somewhat, but actually it's the people at the bottom end the 15% who've got the most challenging lives, who get the worst deal. And that's still the case. I think there's a fascinating opportunity now because so many of the people who work in, work, uh, in the caring world uh, have now had the experience of a, you know, a centre-left government that came in with the, the, the kind of rhetoric they wanted to hear, the budgets they wanted to see. And most things that they measure, not everything, but most things have got worse. So there's an open-mindedness now for progress, and I hope that the new government takes that opportunity. This data-driven approach to politics, was that your single biggest contribution to policymaking? Oh, who would know? I mean, other people can make that decision. Um, I, I certainly thought it was, and still do think it's the best way to refresh a number of our state institutions, but more importantly, the best way to shine a light into the... the uh, The, the, the real needs, um, intensive needs in our community and do a better job of supporting them. I happen to think the tax switch in the 2012 was about as good as you'll see anywhere. No one else has really been able to pull that off and actually counters your argument that under MMP you can't win an argument. I mean, the day we put up GST, it was the actual day it was announced, there was no controversy. And that was a product of a process that was open and turned out to be fairly persuasive and anticipated the kinds of legitimate arguments you would expect against that policy. So and I, it was I a was policy change that. that lasted. And it stuck. That's yeah. right. Yeah. In a similar way, the IDI is also with us still, except it hadn't, hasn't really been used for six years. But no, it well, might the, come back now. Well, and, and it's inevitable. I mean, the, the previous government just chose not to know things. They didn't know what to do with it, did they? Oh, yes, they did. They knew to shut to, to, to shut down the analytical processes that it was supporting because those processes lead to change, okay? And that, that's, the real, that's the real resistance to the, the data-driven approach. So if you're out in the, real, in the commercial, in the market, you're, you need to know all this because Amazon's making you do it if you say you're in retail, Or the regulator says, well, we can track and trace your product all around the world, so you have to do it. They use, they have to get on and use the tools, whether you like it or not. So we've just been through this sort of odd period where the institutions of state with the government for whom they were a core constituency said, well, actually, we don't want to, ch we don't want to change. In that sense, the most conservative operators of government that we've had for decades, we want no change. In fact, we want to... Mm -hmm reinforce the institutions of the 50s, not update them. 
So hopefully there'll be a bit of updating there. And New Zealand is still the only country in the world with a system like that. Well, we are certainly way less experimental, even than Australia. Uh, in Australian, there's a lot of vigorous debate about how things should get done that are government funded, and, that, and, and that's a good thing. And at least here we have the toolkit to do it, thanks to you. Well, well, thanks to plenty of people, but I hope the, the ones who believe in it all crawl out of the crawl out of the woodwork now. But it, it helps cut through a lot of these sort of ideological structures that, you know, does the right wing care about people? Well, we care enough to actually know about them and the left wing didn't care enough to know about them. It decided not to know and just let it drift on. Do these categories that we drop people in, particularly ethnic categories, but there's many others, are they useful ways of improving our community? Well, the answer is no. Uh These non-government entities who are an important part of our civil society, are they right or left? Well, who knows, but they're effective and they may be motivated by being openly socialist or capitalist with a bit of money to spare. If you focus on the data, it's just, well, did it work? We don't really mind who you are. Final question, and I've really enjoyed this hour-long conversation. What is the single biggest source of optimism for you for New Zealand's future? Oh, just uh, the, the kind of resilience and self-adjustment. So every time you think things are getting out of hand and will go to hell in a handbasket, the public rise up, draw a line, throw a government out, push back, run a protest. Uh, Kiwis are kind of passive until they stop. I always used to think of the standing in front of audiences, particularly the more provincial audiences, where you could get up there and you'd give this great speech and they're all just kind of sitting back in their chairs. Yeah. You know, and you have no idea what they're thinking. And at the <laughs> end, you wouldn't know if they're going to get up and say, that was fantastic, or get up and start yelling at you because you're an idiot. That's kind of New Zealanders go along with things until they don't, and then they do something about it. Well, then let's hope that we will do something about all the challenges uh, that we face. Well, um, the initiative's doing plenty, we, and I we, must compliment you on that. Thank you. No, and thank you for your time and for your insights. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope we can do it again in the future. But for now, thank you, Bill English. Thank you, Oliver.